Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. This week on Life's a Beach, I've got in the beach shack an absolute rugby league legend, Scott Sattler. He speaks about growing up in Queensland and then when he made his career in football and now after that from being a football manager for the Gold Coast Titans and also starting his own investigation company, uh, he tells the highlights and the, uh, the down times he had throughout his career. So let's sit back. Now listen to my chat with Scott. This week on Life's a Beach, we've got Scott Sattler, a former professional football player and a legend and uh, breaks my heart of one incident that happened back in uh, 2003. We'll talk about that later. Scott, mate, how are you? I'm good, Hoppo. Uh, absolute honour to be here, mate. Uh, watched you for many years and admired the... Uh, the show and everything you and your team do for so many years. So, uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I knew that very early on in this conversation that being a, a Bondi Beach boy, that the roosters will get <laughs> raised pretty uh, pretty early in the face. <laughs> yeah, mate. Well, uh, let's start with uh, growing up. You, you, you grew up in Queensland? Yeah, grew up in Queensland. Born in Sydney because my dad was still playing for South Sydney, but then I only lived there for about eight or nine months before the family moved to Queensland. And I had a pretty good upbringing. I had a very good upbringing, I've got to say. It was, uh, but we grew up in pubs. When my dad retired from rugby league, Hoppo, in 1975, he never drank until he retired from rugby league. He never drank during his career. So his first business outside of rugby league was owning a pub. So the Carlton United Breweries put him in a pub at Gladstone, which is a pretty rough sort of part of town, central Queensland back then. And they bought a pub up there and they wanted dad to go up there and clean it up. So he was still only at 33 and he was still as fit as a Mally Bull. So <laughs> they threw him up there and then the life in pubs commenced for the Sattler family. We basically lived in all the pubs that we owned. And, and a lot of people, if you tell the stories to a lot of people about what myself and my sister went through for so many years, you'd, you'd sort of think that's not the great upbringing for a child. But I've got to say, <laughs> we, we got to learn a lot, of, uh, a lot of street smarts from a very early age, my sister and I. Well, you definitely would have, especially out in, uh, at that part of Queensland. Uh, would have been a, a tough uh, upbringing. But do you think in hindsight that's what set you up for the rest of your life? Well, I think definitely when it comes to like, communicating with all different sorts of people. So from a really early age, you know, at the age of you know, six or seven, I'd be on my bike, on my skateboard, and I'd, I'd be running through the public bar and grabbing a, a glass of putting up to the post mix and getting a glass of Coke and, and then walking out and sitting on the bar stool. And, and my dad used to always have a really good saying. He used to always say, son, you should always be able to talk to the bricklayer and the barrister. And so for one moment, I'd be talking there, sitting there talking to a group of bricklayers who have worked all week and on a Friday afternoon, they're having a beer. And then I'd pop up into the lounge bar and I'd be talking to my mum and she'd be talking to a heap of barristers and lawyers. And so from a really early age, my sister and I got this, uh, this really good knack of being able to just wander into any room and we didn't have to know anyone, but we'd end up finding a few friends along the way. So 
it did it set me up I think uh, in a way that uh, we became tougher from uh, at a younger age because we actually we got to see a lot of things that kids probably shouldn't see a lot of violence a lot of violence I mean every Friday night there was a you know there's a potential uh, boxing champion that wanted to come along and try and take the crown from the old man and and in you know twenty odd years in pubs, I never saw him got beaten. So never seen him get beaten. So we got to see a lot of things that kids probably shouldn't see. But what it did do, it sort of battle hardened us a little bit. When we, whenever we saw something in life that many people would cringe at, we'd sort of go, "Oh well, it's part of life." Yeah, so yeah. I thought it was a really good, uh, really good street smart education. Well, we'll touch on your dad a bit later as well because he was also a legend of rugby league and, uh, and and known as probably one of the toughest players that, that played the game, but. Mate, from there you went to um, school and, and predominantly, I think when I was looking at it, you played rugby uh, before rugby league? Well, I played soccer up until I was about 11 and I started playing rugby league. My dad didn't let me play rugby league because he thought it was too rough, too dirty. So I played soccer and then started when we went to the Gold Coast, I started playing rugby league at 11 or 12 and and then I kept playing rugby league with Runaway Bay, you know, Runaway Bay Seagulls, which is a club on the Gold Coast. And... And then because we were growing up in the pubs and I was getting to an age of about sort of 14, 15, where I was starting to sort of become a little bit wayward and mum and dad were working so hard in the pubs, they said, we've got to send him to boarding school because we can't really parent him. So that's where I got sent. I got sent to Nudgee in Brisbane for three years, year 10, 11 and 12 at that real important stage of your life when you're 14 or 15. And that's when I started playing rugby and didn't overly like the game. I I couldn't understand why people had to keep kicking the ball from away from each other. I thought, this game, aren't we meant to be confrontational? Why are we kicking the ball away from each other? Isn't it about holding the ball? But why do we want to get rid of it? So it took me a while to get used to playing the game. And by the time I got used to playing it, I'd finished year 12. So it was straight back to rugby league again. And then how was that coming back to rugby league? And did you think you had a career there or you just thought, I just love playing the game? Never thought I'd have a career there, like playing in Sydney or one of the Sydney comps, because back then there was no teams in Brisbane. Or, well, my last year in year twelve, nineteen eighty-eight, was the first year of the you know the Giants, the Newcastle Knights, and the Brisbane Broncos. So, if you lived in Queensland, there was an option in when you're about sixteen or seventeen. But I finished year twelve and I was sixteen, Hoppo, and I only ever wanted to be a police detective. That's all I ever wanted to be as a, as a teenage kid. So, I had to repeat year twelve to be able to join when I was turning 18 or turned 18. So I repeated year 12 on the Gold Coast at a school called Coomba Bar State High School. They're only three years old at school, weren't known for rugby league. And then all of a sudden, after about three or four weeks, all these new kids just kept coming to the school just by coincidence. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, we were able to amass this really good rugby league side. And we went through and uh, we finished sort of, we finished fifth in the nation, but then we, but we, we won the Queensland State Championship. So... From there, I thought, and I made a couple of rep teams, Queensland schoolboys, and I thought, oh, there might be an opportunity if someone's interested in you that, that you might get an opportunity. And so I did. The Gold Coast Seagulls back there, or Gold Coast Giants became the Gold Coast Seagulls, gave me my first contract when I was sort of 18. And then I couldn't join the coppers because it was either coppers or play footy. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll see how, how long I can suck this rugby league career out for and whenever that finishes well I'll join the police after that so that's when it all started and you know 14 years later I was going to join the police force and I, I never ended up joining. Well mate uh, on that be, before we go any further that we'll touch on your dad because coming through as, as a 
a young bloke playing football, the expectations on you, did you find it difficult following the path of your, of your dad, who obviously, for people that don't know, played many years for South Sydney and was renowned for uh, being tough and played, I think, was at the grand final with a broken jaw and, and an amazing effort. Yeah, captain his country, captain South Sydney, played in six grand finals. They won four of them uh, through that really good period of the 60s and early 70s for South Sydney and played his whole career with uh, South Sydney in the Sydney competition. So a tremendous guy off the field as well, uh, highly respected off the field and a very good rugby league player as well. He's renowned for that 1970 grand final where he, he broke his jaw in four places, just under there, uh, just under the ear, both ends of the chin, both sides of the chin and then under the other ear as well. And that was in the second minute of the game. And so, yeah, people call it stupidity. Uh, some people call it um, heroic. <laughs> uh, but in saying that, as a kid, you didn't really care. You didn't really – I don't think you really understand the notoriety of your father and who he was when you're 13 or 14. But then when you sort of get your first contract and you start playing your under-21s, that's when I think everyone's starting and expecting you to, to be better than what you really are. So – there was a fair bit of pressure at that stage. I've got to say, Hoppo, his name actually helped me a fair bit as well. I've got to say, like, there's probably some times when I wasn't playing great rugby league at about sort of 22, 23. I wasn't playing great rugby league and, and it would have been easy for a club just to sort of say, well, let's just get rid of him. But I, I think because of the name and how respected he was and one thing I always used to really pride myself on was really training really hard. So I think... That sort of kept me there until I, you know, I started early. I, I played first grade young at nineteen, and then lost my way there for a couple of years, and then re, rediscovered myself again. And and that they always say that shadow is always hovering over the top of you as having a famous father. But I've got to say, like he was an, a, a, a great inspiration. He was brutally tough on you as a as a father. But I think in in the long run, it really helped me out when you you know you you faced a couple of crossroads. Rather than being a hindrance, it was actually more of a more of an aid, actually, because yeah, because he was really tough on you as a dad, and he critiqued you pretty tough as well as a player, and but he sort of instilled a, a lot of really good a really good uh, set of values in you as well. And did that come through? Where obviously his era was a pretty tough era. There were you know that they'd still hit high, they'd pick people up and dump them, and it was a pretty you know a gruesome side of the game compared to today. Did that instill into you as well? Well, I think I think I was able to never complain too much when everyone trained too hard because <laughs> knowing the way that and the way that he raised me with training and and then seeing a lot of you know watching a lot of his old VHS tapes as a kid growing up and seeing how brutal that game was, I think it just be you sort of subliminally just it takes over your body as well. You sort of think, well, you know, if that's the game the way it was and if it happens when you're playing, well, so be it. That's just the way the game's been built. And so it did. It sort of – it became sort of, you know, part of your you – know, I suppose part of your psyche that that's just the way the game's played. You get over things pretty easy, you know, and, and now the game's cleaned up a lot, which is better for the game. Yeah, I think going through those those times and, and rubbing shoulders as a kid hopper with – yeah, legends of the game like you know, Chuck Raper and you know, Ronnie Coote and Arthur Beetson and Bobby McCarthy, these sort of people were just sort of part of our life. And so it made it easier, I suppose, just to get through the, the cloud of rugby league a lot easier because you've been exposed to a lot more at an early age. Mate, well, tell us about some of the teams you played for. You, you touched on the, 
you know, the Gold Coast, but you, you played for a few teams throughout your career. So I started with the Gold Coast. All I ever wanted to do was play for the Gold Coast. Being a Gold Coast kid growing up most, most of my life, I only ever wanted to play for the Gold Coast. And so when I first got graded there, I played under-21s. And and in my second year, we got to play first grade. There was myself and Jamie Goddard, who played Origin, Kevin Campion, who played Origin, uh, Adrian Vowles, who ended up going and playing Origin. We're all a group of young kids that came through. And and we played first grade really early under uh, Wally Lewis, who was our captain coach. And... And so then the Gold Coast had this really good group of youngsters, Hopper, and we, they should have kept them together and they would have been a very successful uh, team in years to come. But they they sort of didn't make the young players a priority. So a lot of us said, okay, well, let's go and find an opportunity somewhere else. So I signed at the Roosters for three years as a young guy and got down to Sydney, Hoppo, and just wasn't emotionally mature enough for it. I just, I, I just I couldn't, I couldn't handle the fast pace of Sydney. On the Gold Coast, there's... The only public transports you got is a is a bus, you know. In, in Sydney, you're getting on a bus, then a train, then another bus to get somewhere, and crawling through a hole in the fence at Newtown Stadium Station to run to Newtown uh, to Henson Park to go to training. And after about six months, I I broke my jaw. I was out for about twelve weeks. I was just sort of saying I just wasn't enjoying it. wasn't enjoy- and it was affecting my footy. And so I asked for a release and came back to Queensland to play for the new. South Queensland crushes in 95, which was really exciting. As a Queensland kid, everyone wanted to play for them, a little bit like the Dolphins this year. And so I went back, and I've got to say, we went went really well. It was playing really well. And and then at the start of 1996, Hopper, we got told before the season even kicked off that we weren't going to get paid. And so we thought, oh, what do we do? Do we go and find a profession? Do we just do we continue just playing? And and so he kept playing there and then we ended up getting about 15 or 20 cents in the dollar or something at the end of the year. And and so I, I made a conscious decision that I had to peel back all the layers and I had to go back to where it started, where I started playing my first, my best rugby league, which is back to the Gold Coast. So I went back to the Gold Coast Chargers, which was then the Gold Coast Seagulls, and, and it started again. And from then I, I played really good rugby league for a couple of years and then Penrith Panthers, I was fortunate enough to be picked up by Penrith. I actually... I had South Sydney, Manly, and Penrith. And my dad said to me, oh, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm not going to play for South because that was your jersey, number 13. I'm not going to touch that. And I said, it's out of Manly or Penrith. And dad said, well, if you play for Manly, I'll never watch you play another rugby league game again. <laughs> so I made it pretty easy. I went out to the Lower Blue Mountains and, and just loved my time out there, loved it. It was five years, great community. We tasted, you know, obviously the ultimate success, but also... We tasted a fair bit of bitter disappointment as well, having getting the wooden spoon in that, those years as well. So, yeah, I sort of started early and then hit a bit of a, a few road road humps and then got going again when I was about sort of 24, 25. Yeah, touching on with the Penrith, as you said, there's, a, there's tough times at Penrith, but you also had success with winning a grand final. And, and mate, tell us, it's renowned for that tackle you did on Skinny Burns, mate. It, it, you know, as, as much as of a, a Roosters supporter, it was a, a, a great tackle. But, mate, what, what was, do you remember what went through your mind at that stage? Or it was just all instinct to, to, to run and chase? Because he's a winger, which is pretty quick, and you had to make some ground up to get across and tackle him. Hopper, I've got to say, a lot of people say instinct, but I've got to say it was more sort of preparation because the, the coach at the time was Johnny Lang. Great guy, just one of the great guys. Um, and... 
he's one of those coaches that just simplified life. He didn't try and overcomplicate the game, which a lot of people can do. But when he first came to the club at the end of 2001, he said he had a meeting with me. He said, oh, Stats, I want you to play like an old-fashioned lock, number 13. He said, so to try and simplify it, he said, yeah, if you're on the other side of the play the ball on the fifth tackle and we're going to kick it from the other side of the field, I just want you to start heading in behind the defensive line. Just he used to always say this saying, just in case you need it. And so I, from that moment on, every training session and every game, if I was on the opposite side of the field and the ball was going to kick, I just used to start heading in behind. So on that night, um, Ryan Girdler, who plays on the left-hand side, he just took off down the over the other side of the ruck. I went, oh, Gerd's just seen something. I wonder what he's doing. And all of a sudden he put this rank kick in that hit the uh, ankles of Rico, Luke Rickardson, and Freddie picks it up and just he fired a beautiful ball to, to Skinny and... I was fortunate enough for me, I like I said, like I kept doing, I just sort of started heading behind in case I was needed. And and when Skinny took off, Luke Lewis got a bit of a good – he sort of checked him a little bit. And because it was a wet night, I, was, I think everything was just sort of in, in a line for us. And when it's a wet night, you know, us mud runners get – we get brought back to the field a little bit. So <laughs> everyone else gets brought back to the field a little bit. So for me, it was, it was fortunate it was a wet night. Um yeah, you know, Luke Lewis got a bit of a check on him as well, and and Skinny Burn, yeah, you know, to his credit, yeah, you know, the wingers will always say, say to you, the quickest way to the trial on is straight ahead, and um, and but fortunate enough for us, it was just a, you know what, I, I I listened to some of the Roosters players when they interviewed over the years, and they said, oh, it was a, it was a dark night that night, it was rainy, they were wearing black jerseys, everything was just aligned to a to a Penrith win, so yeah, we always thought that. If we were going to play the Roosters in the grand final, we'd, we'd beat them. And um, and the way that that played out that moment, I suppose, was you know culminated in in your coach preparing you for the moment as well. Do you think that uh, in that moment that changed the game? Do you think because I think it was six all at the time when you made that tackle? Do you think that really swung the game and also lifted the rest of the of your team of what you did? I don't know. I don't know because. What a lot of people don't know is that straight after we had the obviously the scrum feed, poor Skinny got he got that he got that sledged after that as well by all the players when they came across they just sledged him and I I felt sorry for the poor bugger actually because he's such a good player Skinny and a great guy as well you know I've never had a lot to do with him but everyone that played with him just said he's a tremendous guy anyway but we had the scrum feed we actually dropped the ball the next the very next play so we're under the pump again straight away and had to defend our line so. I don't know whether it changed the game. That that's probably something that your teammates could only ever tell you or the, the observers. But all I know is that all I know is that I suppose at that moment we all converged as one as a team and everyone sort of thought, Okay, well, you know, it's six all still. We we've still got an opportunity here to to try and, you know, just nail a, a bit more of a co- uh, nail into this uh, this coffin of the roosters. So they threw everything at us and we always said going to that game, Hoppo, that if we can withstand the first 15 or 20 minutes, the, the barrage and the onslaught through Morley and Rickardson and Fitzgibbon and, and Co, they're going to put us under Mick Crocker. Uh, if we get through that period, I reckon we could win the game, and we did that. They they just bashed us for 20 minutes. But I think that first 20 minutes is the reason why we won it. And then looking back, what, what was the feeling like when the siren went, you won the game, but you, and you're at the, you know, how old were you there? You're at the end of your career, I think, at that stage. So must have been amazing. I was 31. Yeah, 31, 30, turning 32 in 
in December. So, and I'd been told about five or six weeks beforehand that that I can't be fit in the salary cap because we had all these really good young players coming through the club. Yeah, Trent Wardhouse and Luke Lewis and Luke Rooney and Shane Rodney and Steve Turner, all these really good young players. And and anyway, to be told that you you're not going to be at the club next year, I suppose for me it was a little bit it was a little bit different. You know, I I treated it like obviously this is my only opportunity I'm possibly going to get. And I was going to the West Tigers, which were a team that was really starting to redevelop under Tim Sheens. And the other players that stayed there, like your Lewis's and Rooney's, they just thought they were going to play in grand finals every year after that. So for me, it was probably a little bit more of a selfish view of it. Yeah, it was great to do it with my teammates, but you guys get to stick together next year, so I'm going to try and save this moment myself And at some stages. I've got to say, when Luke Rooney scored, he scored in the 73rd minute to make it 16-6. Luke Prittis, who got the Clive Churchill medal, still to this day, I think it's one of the greatest individual performances we've ever seen. And a lot of people seem to not talk about him through that grand final, which he should be. He should get a lot of the attention. But when when Luke Rooney scored, we knew we hadn't won the game yet. But Ryan Girdler left the field with a torn calf muscle and Preston Campbell had to kick the goal from the sideline in the rain. He had a bad ankle that he'd hurt in a car accident in the preseason. And he kicked it from the sideline. When he kicked it from the sideline with six minutes to go, I thought, oh, they're not going to get us from here. So the final six minutes was really more about celebrating as much as possible without sort of trying to look like you, you've got a, a huge ego and, and, and ignorant about it all. But, yeah, the last five or six minutes was, was all about pure excitement. Now, mate, your uh, career highlights, that would have been one. Are there any others that stand out in that uh, period of your career? Yeah, there's a few, I think. Um, your, your NRL debut, I think, is always one of the greatest highlights. And I was fortunate. Like, I was 19, 20 years of age. Myself and Jamie Goddard were playing under-21s that day against Parramatta. And back then, Hoppe, you can remember, used to go and watch all three grades. And yeah. we'd finished the under-21s game. And the team manager came up and said, did you want to sit on the bench for second grade? And so myself and Jamie Goddard sat on the bench and we played a bit of second grade and then they said, do you want to sit on the bench for first grade? So we went, oh, yeah, absolutely, I'd love to. So about 12, 13 minutes to go, Wally Lewis was our captain coach and we'd scored a try and he was walking back. I'll never forget reading reading his lips. He was talking to the trainer and the trainer said, what do you want to do? And, and I remember looking at him and he said, put the two young guys on. And I remember looking at Jamie Goddard and said, I think we're going to F and go on here. <laughs> and so he goes, no. And then the trainer goes, guys, you're on. And so we just jumped up and we're two young guys. We ran on the field and got to play against Brett Kenny for like 11 or 12 minutes. So that's another highlight. Um, I think your your 100th game and 200th game is always a, a massive highlight. And I played my 200th game at Leichhardt Oval against South Sydney on a Saturday afternoon for the West Tigers packed Leichhardt Oval on a Sunday, beautiful Sunday afternoon. We won by 40 or 50 and we're sort of on our way to the finals there with the Tigers. And then that same year, actually, was the last year, Hoppo, was the, the World Sevens, which was played at the Sydney Footy Stadium. And, and we won that that year, the West Tigers, and I was, I was the, I got the World Sevens Player of the Year as well. So yeah, there's a few highlights there. I've got to say, being involved with Wally Lewis as a young guy, that is just, yeah, their memories are, you'll never hope never erase from your memory because he, he was really good to the young guys Wally great to the young guys he gave us a go he he really believed that young guys should be introduced into first grade really early so yeah there's a few highlights there 
was going to say, being, uh, I didn't know you were uh, the captain coach at that time was Wally Lewis. That must have been a yeah, massive thrill. And um, obviously you were playing against Parramatta if you were playing against Brett Kenny, and they had one hell of a side as well. Yeah, they did. They were going through a rebuilding phase, and but Brett Kenny was sort of kept there to try and hold the team together. And you know, as a young kid growing up, you you sort of want to play for Queensland, and and then all of a sudden you get Wally Lewis as a coach, and he just continues to instill how 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 exciting it is to play for Queensland. And then you finally you finally get there yourself, and and I was only fortunate enough to play one game in Origin as a thirty one year old, but I just got to say, like it's, you get that phone call as a thirty-one-year-old to say you're playing, and it takes you back to when you were twelve or thirteen when you're watching Origin every year. So yeah, he was great, Wally. He was he was just such a good guy to have on your side, and and still to this day, really really good friends with him today. He's, he's a wonderful man. Now, touching on the state of Origin, you said you did play one game. Like, how's that when you? I mean, I've watched it all my life on TV and and watched it, and just that. And actually, I was at the the World Cup soccer, and I was sitting next to uh, Cooper Cronk, uh, and he was talking about it. I said, mate, you sure you can't run back out with the Roosters? He said, no, mate, I'm a, I'm a bit slow these days. But he said, I don't miss playing the game, but when the Australian team were running out, he said, I miss this moment, though, of running out in the big, the big time, the big game. So how was it that day when you ran out as a Queenslander? I've got to say, running out, playing in New South Wales at, at the Olympic Stadium and lining up, just lining because Queensland running out first. And I've got to agree with Coop, you don't miss the, the knocks and you don't miss the the injuries and stuff like that, but you do miss – I miss the two-minute buzzer. Like there's a two-minute buzzer in the dressing shed which says you're about to go out. And it doesn't matter how relaxed your dressing shed is, as soon as the two-minute buzzer goes, you see everyone, they're like – Cats on a hot tin roof, you know. Straight away, everyone's up and jumping around. They don't know what to do. It's look like, it's like everyone's in a unfamiliar territory. You don't know what to do with yourself, and and then running out. But I remember running out and hearing the boos because the New South Wales fans and lining up for the the national anthem. And then New South Wales ran out. And I've got to say, I've never felt my body shake as much as what it did. It was shaking internally to the point where. It, you started to, you know, when like a plane is really low flying going over your head and you sort of you sort of feel as though the plane's going to hit you. That's what it was like. It was like the crowd was all converging on you. I remember looking at Gordy Tallis and, like, again, like I'm 31 and you've played like nearly 200 first grade games. You think you'd be used to that environment, but I remember looking at Gordy and Gordy was a, you know, he'd been there for a while now since 1994. I remember looking at him and he looked at me and he goes, oh, Welcome. I went, oh, I've never heard anything like this before. This is insane. <laughs> yeah, so, and the game itself is quicker than anything you'll ever play. I remember looking up at the first time I looked up at the clock, there was 45 seconds to go in the first half. I thought, geez, that went quick. And then looking at it the second time, I looked in the second half and there was about a minute and a half to go in the, in the match. And I thought, it is the quickest brand of rugby league ever. The, the hits are constant, everyone's in your face. Everyone comes in numbers rather than individually. And, yeah, it was – your body goes through a fair bit of pain physically. And is it amazing how – well, I'm amazed on how you guys play State of Origin, but then they back up the following weekend. Jeez, that must be tough. I remember we played the Bulldogs. We played the Bulldogs about three or four days later on a Sunday. It was about five days later. And 
I remember I, I physically I felt okay, but emotionally I just felt really, really flat. And we went out and ended up winning the game, which was great. But to, to think some of those guys do it year in, year out, you know, guys like Cameron Smith and Freddie Fittler and, and Joey and those guys who did it for 30, 40 times in their careers and then backed up two days later, two days later is worse than four or five days later, as you know, Hopper. You, know, you go for a few swims in the salt water and it, it's great therapy for you, but to back up one or two days later, I don't know how guys would have done it consistently throughout their careers because – and you find that it's actually not the – Two, it's not the one or two weeks after Origin. It's a lot of the guys that play consistently. They say it's sort of five weeks after Origin that your body just hits this, just hits this massive barrier where you you sort of feel as though you can't get through the fog. Yeah, so it's a little bit like Bradman Best. I was interested to see how Bradman Best would have come back from Origin this year. Would have he felt flat, or would have he go, go to another level? And we've seen the way that he's played for Newcastle. He's just gone to another level. Yeah, it does. It does bring some up, doesn't it, to a. To another level. I suppose it gives you that bit more confidence coming back into a first grade from playing at that level. Yeah, you know, I just think, you know, I suppose when you win anything, you recover quicker as well. So if you win an Origin Series, I think you recover pretty well. When you lose a series, it takes you a little bit longer to get over physically because you're still hurting emotionally and then your body just follows with it. So you know, I, I just I take my hat off to those guys that did it time and time again. Retirement, how was that? Was the decision made quite early? You knew it was time or it was something just came upon you? Well, I signed for two years with the West Tigers when I was going to be 32, 33. And I came out of that 2003 year, we won it. And I, I sort of, I just got used to carrying a bad knee. Now, it didn't affect me from playing or didn't affect me from training, but it would just, it would jar up now and then. And I'd, I'd, and it would sort of just lock, lock my leg. And I'd, I'd sort of work my way out of it and I'd get back into it again. I used to swell up at times, but it never stopped me from doing anything. And But when I went to the West Tigers, I remember we the pre-season was really, really tough, really hard, long and arduous. And I, I remember saying to Timmy Sheens, I, I, I just I just got to watch my knee. I'll be okay, but I just got to watch it a little bit. And But being new to a club, you sort of got to try and sort of set some standards as well. And and they had a really bad – I thought they had a really bad training ethic when I went to the West Tigers and didn't have great training values. And so you sort of try and do every session and it was sort of to my demise. I, I played every game well, – pretty much nearly every game that year. But I remember we were playing against Melbourne Hoppo and I was running back in defence one night and then my, my knee just locked up and just froze. and went, oh. So the trainer tried to unlock it, which I did, and it just kept happening more and more often. And so I – I went out a meeting with Timmy Sheens and Steve Noyce, their CEO, and I said, listen, I don't think I'm going to be able to go on like next year. And they said, well, just wait until the end of the year. So I waited until the end of the year. I said, no, nah, my knee just keeps locking up. And so they said, okay, how about... And then Tim rang me in the off-season and said, when I officially retired, he said, how about you come back for the pre-season, but you just do rehab all week and just do captain's run on Friday, Saturday, and then play. And I thought about it and I said, let, let me go for a run. So I went for a run and I came back, my knee blew up and I said, I'm no good. And then he rang me in January of 2005 and said, come on, mate, I need you to come back. I need you to just do that training regime. And I said, Sheenzy, one, I'll be stealing your money. And two, I don't think I'll get through the whole season. I don't know. And I look, at that, I look back now as a 51-year-old and think, 
I'm really healthy now and feel as though I'm really good and don't have any problems. I could have been able to play, but back then I was really hurting. But the worst part about it, Hoppo, in 2005, they went and won the comp. So, <laughs> so it was it was something that was you'd say it was forced upon you. But when you when you're 32, you, you're sort of thinking, well, you've had a pretty good run. And um, post career, I I struggled for a few years with my knee, uh, not been able to do a lot of things. Psychologically, I struggled a bit. Even I had a really good job because I went straight into the general manager's role of the Gold Coast Titans, helping put that team together for the first sort of three or four years. And, and I was working for Fox Sports. So professionally, I was I was going really great, but there was just something empty that was missing. I don't know what it was. I don't know whether it was – I don't know what it was. I couldn't – still today, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I really struggled emotionally. I remember some days I'd be laying, I'd be laying on the in the fetal position in the – in the bathroom, I'd just be crying for no reason. I don't know why. And my little daughter would walk in and say, what's up, Dad? You know, and, and I couldn't, I didn't know what was wrong. But And then I'd pick myself back up and I'd go out to work and come back home again. And um, so like a lot of rugby league players, you just sort of, you struggle not being in that team environment, being around your mates. And, and it's a pretty shallow world when you think that your your life revolves around, you know, going and, and training for a living and, and hanging out with your mates and, and me thinking that that's the be-all and end-all in life. And that's what you think when you're in that environment, though, isn't it? That's mm. all you think about. And I think it's probably – I've spoken to uh, a lot of people in, during you – know, I've interviewed in the podcast, and a lot of them say, too, they miss that adrenaline rush. When they finish, you know, whatever sport you're doing, it's that adrenaline rush of, of what you're about to do, and that sort of – that goes, and you, you probably just don't get the same feeling in, in, in life after that. Well, I think as a professional sports man or woman, you you get paid to train. And you get paid to train hard and hang around your mates and look healthy and eat healthy. And and all of a sudden, post-rugby league career, you go, <laughs> oh, hang on a sec, I've, I've, got to, um, I've got to go and sit in an office for 10 hours a day. And uh, I've got to try and squeeze a, you know, a, a laps in the pool or I've got to go squeeze some time into the gym over here. How do, you, how do, you, how do people juggle with this when – you're getting paid to do it. And I've got to say, rugby league players get it pretty easy. Yes, it's tough at the end of the week when you've got to play a game, but throughout the week, it's it's a pretty good life. You get a lot of spare time on your hands, family time, you know, time to train hard and, and hang out, like I say, and hang out with your mates as much as you're possible. So I think that's that's what you miss most, most of all when – you talk to a person that's been working since I was 16 or 17 and doing put in eight or 10 hour days and they say, hang on a sec, you, you don't feel entitled because, you know, I've been doing this since I'm 16. We had a really easy life when you look back on it. And then you mentioned the football uh, manager as well for the Titans. How is that, putting a new team together, being involved with that? Exciting, really exciting. It was, um, you know, to be able to, one, put all the systems in place, uh, a brand new team on the Gold Coast. Yeah, it's exciting. It's a shiny new toy. And then you're contacting player agents and sitting across the table with potential players and then flying them to the Gold Coast and putting them in the helicopter and flying them from you know, the airport down the south all the way up to you know, Stradbroke Island up the north and turning around and coming back. And by the time they got on the plane to go home, you had a signature on a contract. It was a really easy sell, to be honest. So it was really exciting. And... And I did that for sort of four years, and I, and it was, a, it was a real fulfilment in, in my life because you know to be able to put a team together from scratch and 
and it was really traveling along well. And uh, I had a real, I, I had a bad fallout with the the owner back then, who was a good friend of mine, Michael Searle. We had a we had a bad fallout, and you know he questioned my integrity, and and uh, I didn't accept it. And so I I thought it was in the best interest of everyone that we probably part ways. And uh, and but then I was sort of glad in a way that I did because I didn't want to have to rely on the game, Popo. You know, a lot of people continually live their life trying to rely on the game they played. They played. So I, it forced me, even though I didn't get to join the police force, which I should have, it's one of my great regrets. So I, I ended up going down the path of working in investigations anyway. I, I partnered with a very good friend of mine who's still a close friend today and and learnt the learnt the trades of, of how to be a, a factual investigator. So And now I've got my own or managing director in partnership with a like an inve- a national investigation firm. So we do a lot of work throughout this country. We do a lot of work in Indonesia as well. We've got an office in Indonesia. And so I'm sort of really, really pl- proud that I was able to find another set of skills to be able to utilise rather than just rely on the game 100%. And that's great because, as you said, you always want to be a policeman, but you, you've sort of fallen into it in a, in a roundabout way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you know, sometimes we're working against the police now. So, yeah, acting on behalf of the defence. Yeah, we do a lot of work in insurance and work cover, and and um, also a lot of criminal investigations as well. And, and yeah, so it's it's sort of like scratching a bit of an scratching a bit of an itch. You know, when people say, "Is there anything you regret in life?" and people go, "No, you should never regret anything." I think that's absolute bullshit because yeah. I do I do regret never never joining the police force I, I feel as though I really would have enjoyed it and uh, but yeah this is the next best thing and and I really enjoy it still do it today and um, and we'll be doing it for a lot of years to come yeah and mate also you've um, you're still in the media you still do a, a fair bit there tell us a bit what you're doing at the moment so yeah did Fox Sports for a lot of years Channel 9 for a lot of years and then for the last 10 years I've been with a company called SEN which is a 24-hour sports network I um yeah, some of the, the biggest sports broadcasters in the country. So really big in Victoria, Adelaide, WA. Had a real AFL sort of background and following for a number of years. It's became It was part of the staple diet of sport down around Victoria, South Australia and WA. So they launched in New South Wales about four or five years ago, then into Queensland as well. So I've been there 10 years now with SEN. Basically just 24-hour sport. Talk about all sports. So myself and... There's myself and Gary Belcher for a lot of years, and then now Matty Rogers, who's a dual international. We do a show every night from six to eight, and then we call the rugby league each weekend as well. So we call sort of two or three games a weekend, and so still I've got a, a really heavy presence in the game. But what I, I really enjoy, Hoppo, is following other sports. Like I've and Ed, like I've never been a V8 follower growing up, but to learn a lot more about V8s and knowing how much Australians love like the V8 the V8s and uh, knowing a lot more, you know, following a lot more about um, a lot of the women's sport. I love the NRLW. And I've got to say, even though I was a surfer as a kid, I never followed the tour much. But then over the last sort of eight or ten years, I've just continually followed the tour and just, yeah, so being educated in other sports is is pretty cool. Yeah, and I think touching on the women, isn't it amazing? I mean, I went, as I said, the the Women's World Cup and, and watched the, the skill level in women, and, and same with the football, like the, the, they're unbelievable how much improvement has been in the last few years. Well, we've got, well it's all being dictated now by um, you know, high-performance training So because there's so much elite coaching now where once upon a time you had to 
search far and wide for what would be class elite coaching. And, and a lot of people didn't have access to those elite coaches. Now there's so much access where all these sports are going over and spending time in the EPL, the NFL, whatever it may be. They're getting all this elite coaching and there's so many great elite coaches now in high performance that, that they've got to find jobs somewhere. And then when the NRLW comes across, uh, comes along and then the AFLW comes along and then you know, our great soccer players, football players are going over to England and playing a lot of their, their best football over there and they're getting access to elite coaching now. And of course, we're getting access to elite coaching. Well, the, the athletes themselves are, I suppose, becoming elite themselves at a lot younger age. Like I look at when the NRL, even before the NRLW, I'd go and watch women's rugby league when it would be played as a curtain raiser and before the Queensland Cup or whatever it may be. And then when the NRL started, the W started, it was really good to watch. But now you fast forward you know, four or five years and the skill level is at times, I've got to say, I've at times it's, I think the defence, it's the old school Trevor Gilmeister tackling, <laughs> the Jake, Jake Chavojevic and Victor Radley style tackling as opposed to that wrestling crap we see in the men's. So it's a little bit more raw and honest, the uh, NRLW. I, I love watching it. Mate, how do you think the NRL's going now these days? Do you think it's improved, especially the concussion rule? What do you think about that? Yeah, concussion rule's great. It's outstanding. We're going to see less and less cases of any sort of Parkinson's or dementia. Yeah, when these players are playing today and they're all of a sudden 50, 60, 70, we're going to see a lot less, I think, um, because of the studies around it. And, you know, there's no use going back and trying to penalise the game. If you're a former player that's going to try and penalise the game for what happened back when you were playing, I think you're way off mark because we didn't have the, I suppose, the intelligence and the study around the concussions and the and the long effects of it. But I've got to say, I, I really enjoy the game. I, I still feel as though there's a part of the game that we can improve, which is the defence side of it. I just, we don't, we don't get rewarded for really good low tackles anymore. Like when Jake Trevojevich snaps someone in half, he doesn't get rewarded for that. The only thing he gets is, Jake, let go of the legs. Jake, let go of the legs. So I think when we get back to that rewarding, really good tackle technique, we'll find that right balance. But I've got to say, it's, you know, it's, it never fails to disappoint, you know, whether it's something that's controversial or we see a great try or, you know, a team that's just absolutely flying like the New Zealand Warriors have been this year. And, you know, the, the domination of the Penrith Panthers over the last three or four years, it's, it's a game that never disappoints. Well, mate, I know you're a, you're a Panthers fan. Do you think they can do three in a row? Well, they definitely can do three. You know, they definitely can do three. I, I think it's theirs to lose, put it that way. What Ivan Cleary's done with losing players and then continuing just to rebuild the side is, is amazing. Like his son is, I think, streets ahead of everyone when it comes to rugby league IQ and the competition. Yeah, they can do three in a row. It's, it's theirs to lose. I've got to say, this Brisbane Broncos side, they're young, they're brash, they're confident, they're quick. They've got everything. When you match player for player across the entire team, I think the Broncos on paper are a better side, but... It's the experience in big finals is what this Penrith team are, you know, they really just, it's just like a walk in the park for them now, finals. They, they're so used to playing the big games, they just continually find something. Yeah, I think you're right. They're, they're like the Melbourne, aren't they now? They just seem to lose players, players will come and they'll just bring players through and they just seem to do the job. My son works down there now. He's, he's an accountant by profession, but he's a, he's a stats and analysis nerd. 
Yeah, and yeah. so he got a job down there in their stats and analysis department in the football department. So he put together a lot of the data with you know with his boss and and it's a it's a real data driven game now. Yeah, why we do <laughs> something is based on the numbers, and he loves it. And you know he doesn't talk out of school. I'd love to rob a bank with my young bloke because he never <laughs> he never throw you under the bus. But I never ask him questions. But the little things he can touch on, he. He just says he's never seen a group of people who are so just in, ingrained in their in their sport and in their profession. Like, you know, yeah, they've got outside interests, but their number one priority is is just making sure that they're at the top of their game from a high performance point of view at every time they they're asked to. So, yeah, they're a pretty special club. Yeah, definitely, definitely, mate. Well, mate, it's, it's great having you in to the beach shack, having a chat, mate. Uh, at the end of the interview. We do uh, uh, my five fun facts. So I'm going to throw some questions at you and uh, answer them however you want. What are the best and worst purchases you've ever made? Best purchase. I've got these little silicon sleeves that you put on the top of your plates when you put them in the um, in the microwave. I am, honestly, I am, you should see me with glad wrap. It's embarrassing. <laughs> so I found these silicon things you put over the top of your your plates and the, that's the best purchase I've made off like Amazon or something like that. <laughs> my best purchase is a real estate purchase. So when my first marriage broke up, I just didn't have a cent to my name. And so I, about seven or eight months later, I met my now wife and she didn't have any money as well. And so we, whatever little money we could put together, we went down to this little tiny surfing village, which is in the Northern Rivers called Pottsville. And it's near Kingscliff and only had a really small population. That's the only house we could afford was this house in Pottsville. <laughs> and it was right near the beach. So we went and spent our money on this house and we basically lived on uh, baked beans for a couple of years. And, and But I've got to say, 13 years later, Pottsville's become this Bondi Beach of the Northern <laughs> River. So that's probably the best the best purchase we've made. <laughs> the worst purchase I've made off Sonny Hoppo is electric yeah. scooter. I bought an electric oh, scooter yeah. about a year ago and I had a really bad <laughs> had a really bad crash on it. And so I haven't got on it since. So I've gone and spent a couple of grand on this beautiful flashy, it's got flashing lights and that's the worst purchase. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mate, cats or dogs and why? I'm a dog man. And as we're talking, I've got my little English staffy Frank, who's laying at oh, my yeah, feet yeah, right yeah. now. So I'm a dog man. Never trusted cats. They're sneaky. It's all in the eyes, Hoppo. <laughs> I don't like the cat's eyes. And, you know, they're, they're, it's all about being a ninja and being being secretive. So I don't like. I got no trust in cats. So I've been raised <laughs> by my father to dislike cats. So I'm, I'm a dog man. Uh, mate, uh, what are you most proud of? Well, everyone says if they got kids, most proud of is my, ki- is my kids because I've got a daughter who's 21 who's about to graduate and be a high school teacher. I've got a son who's an accountant, got a degree in commerce and now works in the, his dream job, which is in rugby league. And I, I've got a, I'm, I'm really proud of uh, – I'm proud of that I didn't – I said it earlier on, I haven't relied on the game to – I haven't tried to sort of just hold on to the game to try and – I'm proud of the way that I found another skill set to be able to, to use those skills at. Yeah. What's the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? Hugh Van Kleigenberg, you would have seen a lot of his stuff with the Resilience Project. I've started yeah. reading his book. My wife put me onto it, and I've watched him. I've watched him with great admiration from a distance for a while, but I've started reading his book. I've got to say, it's it's a real eye opener for anyone in life. But something I read this week. 
I'm a, I'm a 9-11 freak. I love everything about 9-11, studying what happened at 9-11, Al-Qaeda and you know, the government and White House. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Okay. I just I like to research 9-11. But I, most interesting thing I've seen this week since seeing it was the um, – it was the 9-11, what, 22nd anniversary. I I learned that Michael Jackson was meant to be on the 103rd floor that morning, but he slept in. Yeah. Uh, Mark Wahlberg and Seth MacFarlane were supposed to be at a meeting at, in, the, in the World Trade Center that morning at 8.30 that morning as well, but they got so drunk the night before, one was too hungover and the other one just caught another flight elsewhere to get out of New York. So that was the most interesting, interesting thing I, I learned this week. Yeah, it's amazing how you know, how it all lines up and and why people aren't going there and because yeah. that would have been some big names if they were in the in the oh, towers at that time. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, what song do you have to sing along with when you hear it? I'm a huge Aussie Crawl fan, James Rain. Uh, so anything Aussie Crawl. Remember Wild Wild West Escape Club. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, whenever yeah. that comes on, that's my karaoke song. So Wild Wild West <laughs> is my karaoke song. Oh, mate, great answers. Now, just before we finish, we, we, a mate of mine, Tommy Woodruff, we, um, <laughs> yeah. we've done a lot of paddling together and, uh, and uh, over the years, and you went to school with him. You know him very well. Now, you mentioned you had a little bit of a, a, a touch-up back in the day, you know, at school, and but I think Tommy must have something with uh, – with footy players because he was going to Spud Carroll's gym recently, about probably a few years ago, and they've ended up in a punch-up in the gym and then out on the street. So it's one of the best stories I've ever heard. You know, two bulls going at each other like Spud, <laughs> who doesn't like to be challenged, and Woody, who I learned from a very early age, had a little bit of an imbalance there somewhere because <laughs> Woody came to Nudgee College in year 11. He was this big, tall, athletic, you know, he's clubby from sunny coast and he was always tanned and he had the cow's lick, you know, and <laughs> he arrived at school. Everyone goes, who's this kid? Anyway, everyone fell in love with Woody. And all of a sudden, we were really close mates. And for some reason, I'll never forget at year 11, I was laying in bed and you know when you can feel someone's watching you? It was late <laughs> at night and it was all the lights were. It would have been near midnight anyway. I opened my eyes and Woody's head was right over my face. He said, you and me outside now. I went, what for? He goes, I don't have to tell you, just get outside. And so I went, oh, okay. So all the other kids got up and go, what's going on here? So I've, as I was walking down the hallway to go outside the dormitory, I said, what's this about? He goes, you know what it's about. I said, I've got no idea what it's about, but if you want to fight, okay, let's fight. So I was this little tiny kid. He was like, he seemed like six foot five back then. And so we went at it. We went at it for a couple of minutes, and everyone split us up, and then we became best mates again. I don't know what it was over. To this day, I've got no idea what it was over. <laughs> oh mate, it's a, it's a classic. With he's got all the young blokes petrified because he's now a lifeguard, and he's uh, yeah, he's got the young blokes. He, they hear all these stories and. The Spud Carroll story, and they're going, "Oh, we're not going, not upsetting, not upsetting Woody." <laughs> oh, honestly, he's just—he is crazy, batshit crazy. Is <laughs> well, mate, uh, Sats, it's been unreal having you in the in the beach shack, mate. It's uh, telling your story, and you've had a fantastic career, and you know you've got a a great career you've built as well for, with media and also the investigation. So, well done, mate. 
Hopper, absolute honour to be here, mate. Like I said, watched you with great admiration from a distance for a lot of years and look, get a little bit envious of, of you and your, your job <laughs> because you sometimes think back and go, look at those guys. Those guys are like when we were playing rugby league. They get yeah, to do yeah. exactly what they love doing, which is spending time at the beach but also looking after people yeah, as well yeah. amongst a group of mates. Yeah, mate, I can't complain. I've been doing it now 31 years, so it's been a, it's been a great ride. Yeah, good stuff. Great to, great to chat with you. Cheers, mate. Now let's go to Beach Banner. This week in the Beach Shack for Beach Banner, we've got Jackson. Jacko, how are you, mate? I'm good, Hoppo. It's good to be here, mate. I thought I'd never get the call up. Yeah, mate, it's, uh, it's a big list there to get in. We're getting everyone no, in. I was yeah, going to say, I'd, I'd be a long way down the line, <laughs> I'd imagine. No, mate, there's no, there's no pecking order. <laughs> mate, uh... You moved, you're born and bred Queensland, then you moved down to Sydney. So one, what, what was it like growing up in Queensland? And the other one is why did you move down to Sydney and then become a lifeguard with us here at Bondi? Yeah, first of all, I'd probably, you know, I was was born in Brisbane and moved up to the sunny coast at a pretty young age. I was always around the beach and was really into nippers and surf lifesaving as a lot of people are up that way. The water's a bit warmer in that part of Queensland, so everyone's active and, and you know keeping fit sort of kept with it all and, and started you know doing not too bad in the sport and I'd probably been spending a lot of time with with mum and dad mum was doing so much of my washing and cooking I thought got to the age of about 22 and I thought geez I should probably start spreading my wings a bit because this is getting a bit embarrassing I'm still having dinner with mum and dad and I'm an only child so I was like let's get down somewhere else and put myself in the deep end and what better place than to come to than try and get a job down here at Bondi as a lifeguard. Well, that's good, mate. You broke away at 22 because Kerbox was still getting looked after at about 52. So you've done well there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I met him and then I thought, geez, I'm not doing too bad. <laughs> so what, your time at Bondi, what's that been like, you know, coming down what, as a lifeguard? Because did you do a little bit of lifeguarding when you're up in uh, Queensland? I did, yeah. It was sort of like a, you know, a pretty seamless transition, I suppose, not coming to Bondi, but just sort of just sort of going from surf lifesaving into the lifeguarding while I was at uni. I studied studied business at uni and so it was just a, it was an easy job to, to sort of hold up there. It's a lot quieter on the Sunshine Coast, a lot more relaxed. So I moved down to Sydney and I thought, you know what, it's probably a long shot, but I'll see what's happening down at uh, Waverley Lifeguards. I knew about the famous Bondi Lifeguards and I also tried it at Ramwick as well. And I was lucky enough to, I remember sitting down at the interview table with you, Hoppo, and um, that was a bit of a, yeah, that was a bit unrealistic at the time. And I thought, yeah, I probably won't get on here. And lo and behold, mate, I must have smelled all right because you put me on. Mate, I must have had a bit of a brain explosion that day, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, nah, mate, it's been good. You've been um, a good asset for the team. So that's uh, been really good for us. And so tell us a bit the, the difference between being when you're a lifesaver and then now coming on as a professional lifeguard. Yeah, absolutely. So like a lot of us sort of, you know, a lot of the boys down here, they've got a background of surfing and, and you know, I suppose just being around the water. Whereas up in Queensland, like I said earlier, the, the culture around surf lifesaving and they, well, they call us clubbies and, and they do the same down in Sydney. It's, it's a lot bigger than it, is, than it is here. So a lot of the lifeguards up there probably come from a surf lifesaving background. 
where it's a lot of volunteer work and you can sort of make the transition to a professional lifeguard. But a lot of the clubbies do move to lifeguarding, whereas probably down in Sydney, everyone's just surfers who have a good knowledge of the water. So I probably bring a different, you know, type of experience. I, I bring, you know, I'm very good on the, on the paddle boards, whereas some of the other boys are, are better at other, other things and better on the beach. So we all bring our, you know, our assets. Yeah, certainly just it's a lot more serious down this way, especially in regards to what we look after, the, the, the volume of people compared to working the volunteers on up in Mooloolabar. You put that on a page with um, working down at Bondi, and you've got about forty thousand into compared to about two thousand. So it's um, oranges and apples, but I wouldn't change a thing for the world. It's it's been a, a great learning experience, that's for sure. And well, I'm still here about eight years later. And it would have been an eye opener too when you first came because of the crowds. Absolutely, I remember working at the beach at Malula Bar and you're sort of just watching time go by. It's just, even in the middle of summer, it's just quiet. And, and all the people who come to the beach there, you get a few tourists, but it's mainly locals. So everyone knows what they're doing. Whereas down here, I remember like my first few shifts, it was like the watch looking at the people out of our lifeguard tower there was just like sardines in a, in a tin. It's just, you, you don't know where to look. And it was, it was daunting to be honest, but you know, we had a lot of boys, down at the beach at the time who took me under their wing and showed me the ways and yeah it's like anything with um with long term you know if you work long enough then you'll you'll get the hang, get the hang of it so i've certainly done that now mate yeah very good job you're doing as well so jack it's great having you at the beach shack mate so right thank I'll you catch you back down at work soon thanks hoppo now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag This week's letter in the mailbag is from Stephen. He's from Sydney. He said, uh, Hoppo, there's a lot of hot weather coming this uh, over the next few weeks. How do you think summer's going to pan out? Well, mate, it's pretty much we follow the European summer usually, so I would say we're going to have some hot weather throughout summer. And it could be one of those years where we get a lot of 30-degree days, but also the sullies come through and the temperature drops and we have a few days of the low 20s. So I think it's going to be a bit of up and down this year. Hopefully uh, we can uh, control it and, and minimise the rescues and also hopefully it's a summer where we don't have too many drownings if there's going to be a hot weather. So thanks, Stephen, for your letter and I'll catch everybody again next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments or follow us on our social media channels which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, Beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.